Did I mention my Ritz Carlton note paper? Sorry, I just thought I'd mention it. That's going to be the bit at the beginning before the music. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the Stadio Podcast. I'm Musa Kwonga. I'm Ryan Hun. Ryan, how are you doing? I'm all right now. We've finally got our intro sorted after 10 takes. <laughs> seem frustrated, anxious. <laughs> you're like an unplayable. I'm the manager and you're an unplayable. And you've just tried to Cruyff turn it out of your own 18-yard box. Just get rid, get rid, get rid. How are you, mate? I'm good. Tactically ill-disciplined. But apart from that, pretty good. Graham Sunes is going after you. Listen, it's... Listen, it's <laughs> yes. <laughs> that Okwonga, he wears brightly coloured hoodies and he, he socialises too much. He's not focused on the on the podcast game. Look at his trousers, man. He needs to be focusing on championships. Here's the thing. Not trousers. If I'm in the Pogba of podcasting, who's my Graham Sunes? Me. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. What a dynamic. What a dynamic. I'm very smug today because I made a very tasty meal. You know, in Germany, they've got this Bauernfrühstück, which is basically like potatoes and omelettes. I did it, but I made it with like fish as well. And it's really nice. Nice. How are you doing, Ryan? How are you keeping? I'm, I'm doing all right. Thanks. On I'm day, doing all right. What day is this? Day? I have no idea. I've stopped counting. Days are, uh, days are days. There are no days anymore. They're just days. We're okay though in Berlin. We're kind of easing up, aren't we? We're easing up first. No, I mean, let's get real. I mean, we've, we joke about this, but we've said all the way through that, you know, compared to a number of people we we are very very lucky in our own personal situations yeah, for and sure, for sure. in the way that the country albeit not entirely perfect but how they're handling it yeah as we're recording there are meetings going on to discuss further relaxation of the rules bundesliga looks like it will be back before the end of may but it's ever changing so maybe we'll hold that for when we know more right because by the time you listen to this but there'll probably be a a decision made but yeah man i mean just want to kind of start by saying as ever we hope everyone's safe and well and doing okay before we move on to today's thing i just want to do a quick announcement we're not going to do an instagram live or a stadio sessions this friday i think we're going to hold off this week let you all have a friday evening without us <laughs> <laughs> well maybe do both next week as a i don't know as an apology we'll as see. an apology <laughs> but yeah so today we're doing what ifs we are what ifs volume three Goodness me. Football's hypotheticals brought to you by Stadio. <laughs> of a whimsical wander through the what if. The content you never asked for, didn't know you needed, and probably don't. <laughs> You're going to get it anyway. The content you never asked for, you didn't think you needed, and you've realised that you really don't need it. Yes. <laughs> here we are once again. Before we go on to today's what if subjects, though, yeah, I want to give a shout out to Soccer Football Forum on Twitter who responded with a link. There's a thread on tappatalk.com, T-A-P-A talk.com, which is a what if thread, it turns out. And they've discussed a couple of things that we've discussed also. Oh, wow. And I, and I wanted to highlight one thing because there was one about the what if Yugoslavia had stayed together. So I just want to give this a quick mention because it's really good. A couple of years ago, they did a potential 2018 Yugoslavia squad. So I just want to read it out really quick. Jan Oblak, 
Simi Vrazalkio, Stefan Savic, Dejan Lovren, Alexander Kolarov, Nemanja Matic, Ivan Rakitic, Luka Modric, Mario Mandzukic, Edin Dzeko, Ivan Perisic. That's the 11, and then the rest of the squad. Samir Handanovic, Daniel Subasic, Ser Kolasinac, Matija Nastasic, Vedran Chorluka, Branislav Ivanovic, Dusko Tosic, Miriam Pjanic. Oh my God. Sergei Milankovic. Oh my God. Mateo Kovacic, Adam Lalic, Kevin Campbell, Dusan Tadic, Marcelo Brozovic, Josip Ilicic, Goran Pandev. Oh my God. Stefan Jovatic, Bedad Ibisevic, and Nikola Kalinic. That is terrifying. That's basically Spain. So that's basically from two years ago. So I think going back to one of the earlier What If episodes where we were talking about Yugoslavia and we said that if they'd stayed together, they could have been arguably the most dominant force in world football for a decade. I don't think it's a million miles away from being true, to be honest. So I just, yeah, I just wanted to flag that up because that was a nice... That's incredible. Because we didn't go because we didn't go through a potential roster. We'd named up, we named checked yeah. a load of players, but I think as something so recent, you know. Can I add to this as well? What's amazing about that squad, that squad basically is second to almost no one, would be better, I think, than the Germany team that won in 2014 in terms of the squad depth, I think. And also it would benefit from all the kind of the brains trust of the 98. So, you know what I mean? It would have benefited from like 20 years of learning mm-hmm. and stuff being passed down and playing as a unit. That would have been arguably the best team on the planet. Yeah. Because it has the physical side as well. It has the physical side. You know, when Bayern beat, crushed Barcelona in 2013 in the semi final, which mm. weirdly no one talks about that much because maybe it was just too brutal to be talked about. 7 0 in the Champions League semi final is brutal, right? Yeah. That, that Yugoslavia team would have had the power to do something similar to an aging Spain team, I think. The thing about the combination of all of those nations is that certain weaknesses of certain countries have been real strong points in some of the other former Yugoslavian countries. So I just think their ability to regenerate, if you like, squad-wise, I think would have been potentially unparalleled. Terrifying, terrifying. But let's move on to some suggestions that we had for today yep uh, the first one i want to highlight is so we ha- whenever we do this man arsenal fans on the internet and i can say this because i'm an arsenal fan right <laughs> there are always so many arsenal ones so let's get an arsenal one out of the way because we've kind of spoke a little bit about the champions league final and a lot of those but there's an interesting one that south end santi raised which said what if nicholas and elka doesn't force the move to Real Madrid in 1999 and instead stays at Arsenal. I mean, what that was the year after Arsenal won the double. That's a terrifying thought. Okay, that's really scary. Okay, well, you go with this because I actually have a different point of view, but Cameron. Because that actually affects the development of Henri potentially, or do they both? That's the question. The question is, with Anelka, does Henri get signed as well? I think Wenger would still go for Henri because Wenger at that point is like, absolute visionary, doesn't get that stuff wrong. Then Henri and Elke becomes absolutely terrifying. You play a 4-3-1-2, Anelka and Henri is the first choice of France instead of Trezeguet Henri. And it's even more devastating. And then basically Zidane becomes what Benabia was at Monaco. He just slips into that role. Obviously at Monaco it was uh, Trezeguet Henri, but Anelka's this beautiful hybrid of like Henri 
and Trezeguet. Creates his own shots, quicker feet. I think you might even get a Champions League out of that with Arsenal, actually. I think with that firepower, you might get a Champions League. I actually think that if he stays, I don't think Arsenal are as good. The knock-on effects of Anelka's transfer weren't just on the field, they were off the field. So it's quite famous that the fee that Arsenal received for Anelka's transfer funded the on-re signing, but it also funded the redevelopment of the training ground, which really brought Arsenal ahead of the curve. Oh, right. And Anelka didn't really, he had his moments throughout his career, but he never really hit the devastating heights that he did at Arsenal, which is why Arsenal were able to command such a fee for him from Real Madrid when he was still a teenager. When Nanelka matured later on in his career, he showed glimpses of being what he could have been early on. But I don't think at the time, Arsenal signing Henri would have sat that well with Nanelka. I just don't think those two would have gelled in the way that Burkamp and Henri did. It's really hard to argue with the way that that transfer played out. I think Arsenal timed it right, maximised the money they could get for him, used the money really well. You know, it led to them signing one of the most iconic players in their history who now holds the goal-scoring record for the club. That's a big gamble to turn around on and say that it might have been better if Anelka had stayed. I just don't, I don't necessarily think it... No, I don't think it would have been better. I don't think they would have enjoyed more success. I just think that the firepower he would have given at crucial points would have taken him over the edge. I don't think that Anelka was good for long-term squad chemistry. I don't think that. I think he would have given them higher peaks at specific points. And the reason I say that is if you look at the Champions League they won with Madrid, I'll never forget how Anelka basically played, I think, half the season in 2000, hadn't played particularly well, and turns up and basically dominates Bayern in two legs in the semi-final and does exactly what he's told tactically in the final, plays like a kind of foil. He's almost been told the role he plays in the final it's almost self-sacrificial, almost been told not to score and create space for Raul and Raul runs through on goal and just opens them up. And Anelka had this strange ability. He wasn't the guy that would basically give you 30 goals a season, but he would be devastating if he felt like it or if the coach could get him to feel like it. And that's what interests me about him. I mean, like I say, that that for those who haven't seen Anelka in the semi-final against Bayern Munich, I challenge anyone to show me a more dominant centre-forward performance over two legs by a centre forward that late in the Champions League. You could say Cristiano Ronaldo and maybe a couple of others, but and Anelka was what, 20 years old. And it was really weird actually that game, that semi-final, because when he turns up for it, everyone's like, I remember thinking before the games, like, is he is he really up for this? Does he really care? And he played as if he'd come through the youth system at Real and was a fan of and that was a strange thing about Anelka. And that's why I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right that Arsenal would not have been as successful if he stayed there. Because I don't think that he gives you that every week. But he's one of those strange players. Actually, Anelka is probably the best example of an unplayable, I think. It's strange because he's won so much, you kind of forget he's won golden boots and stuff, but there's still that thing with Anelka where, and this is to your part about, this is why I agree with the Henri thing. There was always a conversation about the three of them, Louis Saha, Anelka, and Henri. And at one point at Clairefontaine, it was believed that Saha was the most gifted of the three in terms of his all-round gifts. But there was also kind of conversation that Anelka thought he was the best of the three. And that's so interesting how that's played out because I don't fully agree with the Saha assessment. Having seen Henri in his peak and whatever Henri could do, I love Saha. I saw him and he was fit. Still Henri to me had the kind of, that extra gear. But I just wonder how much Anelka's assessment of himself harmed his career. I do wonder about that. 
Yeah, I wanted to just pick up on the point you made about firepower. Arsenal also signed Kanu in 1999 mm, and they signed Sylvain Wiltord in 2000 yeah. who were, you know, maybe at their peak not as devastating as Anelka was or explosive in terms mm. of lights out yeah. speed, um, technical ability per se. I mean, Kanu obviously was, but I think they fitted into the roles really well at Arsenal and that was, over those two seasons, a hierarchy st- kind of started to establish yeah. itself and I think with Anelka in there maybe that hierarchy doesn't establish mm. itself so I personally wouldn't go back and change any of how that yeah. played out um, so that's our Arsenal one out of the way that's great I love that great question though. what a nice question <laughs> yeah, it's also Scott talking about Anelka who hasn't really discussing Anelka for me that that transfer we look at what Neymar, the Neymar transfer, we could argue, actually, if there's some great transfers in football history, recent history, that have really changed the face of football, where one transfer, or as they call the NBA, trade, affects so many mm-hmm. others. The Anelka one is a kind of precursor of the Neymar, isn't it, really? It's like an ancestor. If you think about, in terms of, of course, not the scale in terms of the money, but in terms of a player that talented going onto the market for that amount of money, it's a precursor with the Benzema. You know, when Benzema went to rail, everyone was like, that's too early. But it was like the money wasn't wild amount of money. The Anelka transfer, people forget how seismic it was. All right. So we, we've had this a few times. There are a few things that pop up every time we do a what if. And we get a lot of people talking about the what if Zidane had signed for Blackburn. But there are a few that popped up this time and shouts to everyone who submitted them. But it was, what if Lewandowski signed for Blackburn in 2010? before he moved to Dortmund, because it was on. But I think it was scuppered by the volcanic ash cloud. That cloud literally changed European football. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Barca-Inter thing. Barca lose to Inter because they're knackered after like getting on the bus from all the way from Barcelona to Milan. They get done through on by Mourinho, who's waiting with a knife Mm. and fork for them in the San Siro. And then Lewandowski doesn't go to Blackburn. And the, the funny thing is, he would have played, I think you were saying, for Sam Allardyce. Um, yeah, I mean, this is, let's get into this. Because, okay, let's get, let's get into it. I mean, go on, you go first, because I, I spoke a lot on the Anelka one. So. No, no. I'm, so the thing about Lewandowski going to Blackburn, I think he still ends up somewhere really big. I just think he skips Dortmund. Because I just think a forward that good, if you look at his ability, think about Lewandowski is Blackburn, well-disciplined team, Allardyce knew what he was doing. You can put a striker at the head of that and a strike like that will get 20 goals. He'll get, Lewandowski will get his goals at any level, right? I think he ends up somewhere really good. Possibly, I don't know, Real, but goes, or actually, no, weirdly enough, weirdly, if you look at this, if it's dial it back, if you're a big goal scorer within the Premier League, you often tend to move within the Premier League. So someone in the Premier League, ends up getting you. Well, can I just jump in here? Because we had one of the tweets was from George Smith and he said, um, does he keep them up? Do City then splash big money on him instead of Aguero? Or does Ferguson take a punt on him instead of going for RVP? That's an excellent question. I think the, with Lewandowski's better injury record, I think Lewandowski ends up going somewhere like United because City scouting is already in motion and they're looking elsewhere. They're looking elsewhere. Like, Aguero would have been tracked for a while and the infrastructure to scout someone like Aguero was, would have been in place. I think Lewandowski goes somewhere like United because that's the kind of player they were missing out on. You know, it's what mm. Berbatov was meant to have been, someone that leads the line with elegance, who can score, who can link the play. And I just think Lewandowski is such a good fit for what Ferguson was trying to achieve. 
And the other, because the thing with the thing with Ferguson and um, Van Persie and Wenger, you know, Wenger famously saying that he wasn't sure how much Van Persie had at the very top level, and for Ferguson almost as a throw of the dice, getting him in. Whereas Lewandowski is such a Ferguson type signing, taking a player who's not fully recognised in international um, the international stage and flipping him to something brilliant, Schmeichel. To an extent, he did that from Brunby. People looked at Schmeichel being signed. They were like, oh, what? Half a million for that guy? 10 years later, no one's questioning it. I think Lewandowski ends up at United after, after a year and a half, a couple of years. There's part of me that does wonder, though, if he becomes the same player. Because, I mean, signing for Blackburn under Sam Allardyce in 2010 is very, very different to signing for Borussia Dortmund under Jurgen Klopp in 2010. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just not sure that that Blackburn side is really built to maximise... Lewandowski's strengths in the way that the Dortmund side was. But he would score. Here's the thing, Ryan. Like, look at the... You've got Emerton, very good winger, underrated winger. Gantz Pedersen. These people can both deliver from wide areas. Um, they're great wingers and great set pieces. Benjani was a really good foil for a certain period. He would have slotted into the Santa Cruz role. Santa Cruz was basically a superb player, but didn't quite have it, maybe mentally and also injury issues. So he could have been for Blackburn what Santa Cruz was meant to be. And I was really excited by the Santa Cruz signing. That could have been actually the, that would have been actually the kind of jewel, I think, that would have drawn together the attack quite well. Maybe I'm overthinking this too much. So let's say that he goes to Blackburn and absolutely smashes it, keeps them up. But the thing is then maybe Allardyce doesn't get fired and Steve Keane doesn't get the job. I mean, when did Phil Jones go to Man United? 2011? I don't know exactly when. I'm not sure exactly when. It would have been 2010, right? Because isn't he up for a... Didn't he cancel his, cancel his um, testament, testimonial? testimonial. It's so sad. It's so sad. But so, so what sad. if they sign Lewandowski and, I mean, do you think they sign both? But why not? This is the thing. If they were looking at Blackburn, they look at Blackburn and thought, that is a club we can take someone from. We can trust someone from. They would take a gamble on Lewandowski. So then you have Rooney and Lewandowski as Man United's main two. That's terrifying. And Lewandowski at the time would be 22. Two. That's terrifying. That's the new Van Nistelrooy right there. Do you think he'd still be there? Yeah, why not? If anything, his career has shown us that he's a bit of a nester. He does like staying at clubs for a certain period of time. Certain um, players just like having a run of a run of years somewhere. If he obviously continues on the same trajectory that he did at Dortmund, I think it's likely that he ends up at United or Man City. I'm not really sure which one, though, to be honest. Me neither, I think probably not. United is more likely at the time. But I'm just still not convinced that he flourishes at Blackburn as much as he does at Dortmund. Of course he doesn't. I mean, of course he doesn't because Dortmund's Dortmund. Like Dortmund is just absolutely... Mm. So therefore, I wonder if his career plays out. I mean, we've, we've said before how important a certain move can be for, and how, how right the fit has to be. I'm just not entirely sure if that environment in a struggling Premier League side is the one moving from Poznan to Dortmund mm. is very, very different from moving from Poznan to Blackburn at that age as well because obviously Poland borders Germany yeah. a lot of Polish people learn German from being a kid yeah. so the language barrier isn't so big usually I'm not saying that that's an issue because I think Lewandowski speaks great English but I'm just thinking things like that are so important at, intangibles at, 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 right and, right yeah it's, it's so important at an early age and we've seen how much people can struggle yeah sorry if I sound like a bit of a vibe killer here but uh, maybe I'm being too sensible about this move so maybe I should just go wild and say do you know go what go wild go wild Blackburn win the league <laughs> There you go. Are you happy now? The only reason, actually, this is, and I'm going to bring out my cliche here. The only reason I think he would have flourished at Blackburn is because, obviously, like, well, traditional number nines are always greatly in demand in English football. 
You look at a guy like Lewandowski, you think, where would his goals come from? Set pieces, corners. There's a load of goals that he'd get from like open play. He'd create his own opportunities. If I look at him and go, how many goals he's going to get in a struggling team? I could say five to 10, easy. Easy five to 10. I could see, I could tell where they're coming from. Gabriel Jesus goes to Blackburn. I think he gets blown away. He goes like David, David Bellion, this kind of player, like technically gifted, can press, good, it's two-footed, but it's not immediately clear. Is there aerial strength? Does he need um, assistance from, you know, someone like Lewandowski? You can put Lewandowski in a 4-5-1 at Old Trafford and he'll get your late equaliser. Mm. You know what I mean? He, he's that guy. You can basically stick him up top. It's like a Tevez situation when Tevez went to West Ham. He's just that good. He can create his own. You can give him the final third. That's a really, really good comparison, actually. That makes yeah. sense. That makes sense. So yeah. I just feel like certain number nines that you buy with similar social circumstances coming from abroad, whatever, you can't give him the final third and say, look, just do your thing. I think actually, funny enough, also, I'm mean, not quite the same player, but Gareth Bale had a similar energy about him where Gareth Bale at a certain point you could put Gareth Bale at the top of like a struggling, you could put Gareth Bale at Burnley. Gareth Bale, like just before he went to rail, put him at Burnley and he would like, mm. he'd get you like- it's an outlet. Yeah, yeah. He'd, it, yeah, thank, an outlet. Right, right. That's it. He's an outlet type nine. Yeah. That makes sense. I like that question. Nice question. Yeah, yeah. Wow, you made us think there. My goodness. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so much so that we're going to take a break before we come back. Oh my goodness. <laughs> All right, we're back from the break. Uh, let's do this one really, really quick because sure. Charlu's on Twitter hits us up with this one every time we do it, and we've we've just <laughs> we've not done it. Ah. He said, "I said it last time. Constantly thinking about what would have happened if Leicester didn't win the title. I'm pretty sure politically the world would look a lot different." Oh my god! <laughs> and this has been an on-running joke, hasn't it? That the good vibes of Leicester winning the title basically triggered a a knock-on effect of global catastrophe on multiple levels, politically and more so. That is actually incredible. A lot of very strange things happened in sport around that time, actually. Mm. The Cubs won fairly soon after that, I think. The Chicago Cubs won a World yeah, Series. Yeah, curse, right? Wow, if Leicester don't win, then Arsenal win the league. And they're unpopular champions, but Arsenal don't care because they will have... Not like, in my house. No, it would have been very, very popular. Yeah, but do you know what I mean? In terms of like disrupting the narrative. Do, do you know what's weird about that? If Arsenal won that league title... I'm not sure how they kick on from there. I think Wenger retires. Yeah, does that make sense? I'm not sure how much Arsenal kick on from 2016 because I felt like Wenger was, if you look at that, was his last great title run, I suppose. And then Ozil was kind of peaking. It was like Ozil and Wenger were like peaking together in retrospect, in hindsight. But it's a really, I think it's a beautiful send-off for Arsenal, but I don't see them becoming a dominant force in European football as a result of that. I disagree, but we spoke about Arsenal. We've made this Arsenal and Arsenal one again. <laughs> in short, let's just do this really quick. It's the right? Arscast. Because, become the Arscast. Yeah, I, don't want to, I don't want to talk about Arsenal, man. <laughs> so in short, I think Arsenal win the league. I think Wenger probably retires. And I think Arsenal are back on the map then. Right, okay. And if you look at how many world-class players Arsenal have still managed to sign over the last five years, mm. six years, if you think Alexis Sanchez, well, if you go back to 2013, Ozil in 2013, Sanchez in 2014, They've signed Lacazette, they've signed Aubameyang, they've signed world-class players yep. without ever really contending for the title, apart from one or two seasons, which they blew. It's like we've said before about Liverpool. Liverpool have such a huge reputation in Europe 
among players. Right. And it's the same with Arsenal. It's true. You look at all of the major players, like the or the players reaching their peak now. Prime example, Paul Pogba, grew up an Arsenal fan. You know, I think then you maybe look at the potential of players like Pogba going to Arsenal because Arsenal can contend. Wow. Now that. And so, that, I mean, it's all... Yeah, yeah. No, great point. That's what I think. I think it puts Arsenal back on the map. Wenger goes and you potentially get someone like, you know, in 2016, you probably, you maybe get a Tuchel, you maybe get a whoever, you know, instead. Wow. That's... Might get a Pep. You never know. That... Tuchel at Arsenal 2016. My goodness. Yeah. Anyway, right, let's move on to a non-Arsenal one. All right, I like this one from Christian Larson. What if Neymar doesn't get injured against Colombia in 2014? I think there's a really short answer to this. (laughs) I, Germany still, Germany still do them. I think Germany win (laughs) 5-1. Ha ha. I think Germany win by a two-goal margin. Germany win, I think Germany win like 3-1. Because Neymar obviously getting injured, he robs them of not only an extraordinary outlet on the break in terms of the speed, Neymar's counter-attacking ability is so good that he can run a counter-attack by himself. But of course, he was the true leader of that team. I, I think that it's 3-1 Germany and it's an honourable defeat for Brazil. And it doesn't lead to this kind of like soul-searching. And weirdly enough, the Brazil national team is worse for it because it doesn't reconfigure and sort itself out. You know, Brazil winning a Copa America without Neymar is because they go away and they really start from scratch. But I think if they lose 3-1 to Germany, the honourable defeat papers over the cracks and it doesn't serve Brazil well in subsequent tournaments. What's funny is how that affects Neymar's move to PSG. Who knows? As Neymar comes out of that, not injured, the superhero of Brazil, anointed, not the tragic failure, but the honourable failure. Who knows what that changes? Who knows? I think the thing about Neymar getting injured against Colombia was that it ramped up the emotion on an already hugely emotional situation for Brazil. I think that World Cup was so emotionally charged for them, and understandably so. You know, Brazil is a really culturally proud nation, and they're really proud of their football team. So when those two things combine for a World Cup, and their young superstar gets injured in a really tragic way, and a pretty brutal way, to be honest. It was just like something needed to give. And that game against Germany was so, the level of expectation was so high. Right. And that team was super talented. And obviously you've got arguably the best young player in the world in Neymar leading it. And then it adds another level of pressure and kind of you're doing it for Neymar in the semi-final. And I think that basically you saw a side who stuck to the plan, was very emotionally detached from the situation. Mm. So I wonder whether Brazil maybe perform better. They do, they do. Or whether it adds even more expectation to them. Because they kind of, I think I think a little bit of the hope died when Neymar went out. Can I, can I actually give you a story? I've, I've just remembered this, Ryan, actually. Okay, so there's a couple of things I've got to say. First of all was, I'll never forget Miguel Delaney tweeting just before the final about what he thought the, out- the semi-final, what he thought the outcome would be. And I think it was similar because I, I was I was in touch with another friend of mine, Seb Stafford Bloor, who's a great writer in his own right. And Miguel and I, independent of one another, came to the conclusion that if Brazil didn't start with the right mentality, this could be an absolutely horrifying scoreline. I think I said to Seb, mm. this could be four or five nil. I think I said to Seb on a DM. And the reason I said that was I was in Brazil at the time. I think I mentioned to you before, I was in Brazil. And I remember the night when Neymar got injured. So I'd watched the game, obviously, Brazil, Colombia. I'd watched it out in 
in town because I was doing some broadcasting for the World Service, doing a bit of radio work. I get back to the house I'm staying. I'm staying with, um, shout out to Tomaj and Mateus, in case you're listening. Staying with them in Laranjeiras, like a middle-class district of uh, Brazil, of Rio, sorry. Dude, I walked into the house and they opened the door and the silence, they were like, and then one of them was like, they looked at me like someone had died. Like it was, it was, like, it was like someone's been told, it's like you've been told someone's in like intensive care. It was that level of intensity when I walked in the flat and Mateus just said, Neymar's broken his back. And apparently what was happening, I think Stephanie Nolan as well is a great writer for the Globe and Mail or the Globe in Canada. They talked about it as well. Throughout Rio, the news of Neymar's injury, it was a rumour at first. And when the truth got confirmed, apparently like bit by bit, I got chills remembering it, bit by bit, house parties in Rio fell silent. That is the level of like, they were like, it was like morning. You'd go out in the afternoon, like normally after Brazil win, I was there for the win over Chile in the shootout um, and the place went wild because a lot of people had basically booked, a lot of like really wealthy people had basically booked package tours. There was a lot of tourism coming into Brazil based on the fact they'd be doing the World Cup. So a lot of people made a lot of money through Brazil staying in over Chile. The streets were packed. Someone said, I've never known such a mournful victory as when Brazil beat Colombia. You could sense it. And that is why I think Brazil would have performed really well in the semi-final, And it would have been in the end a 3-1 Germany victory because the national mood Let's not forget when Neymar played early in the tournament, he was the first person to take the initiative to score early on. Even the nil-nil against Mexico, he was the outstanding player. He had basically dragged that team. And this is the thing, Neymar's 2014 World Cup is actually underrated in terms of his performance. Four goals and the decisive penalty against a Chile team that looked as if with a bit of luck they could win the entire thing. Let's not forget the mood in Rio, when Chile beat Spain 2-0, people were walking around going, I think they could win the entire tournament. Mm. That's how good they were. And Brazil snuffed that out. So I think Neymar doesn't get injured. Germany win. But here's the, the other question as well. Do Brazil take so much out of Germany that Argentina have just enough to get over the hill in the final? Well, we had another one from someone else. I can't find it. So apologies. But they, were, they just showed a gif of the Robin dive against Mexico. So maybe while we're here, let's play play a game yeah sure so let's say that mexico beat the netherlands right they probably beat costa rica as well right they're better team than costa rica the netherlands only go through against costa rica on penalties right then it's mexico argentina in that semi-final argentina win that you think yeah they've got that thing over mexico they've got a thing over them. But again that goes to penalties doesn't it that argentina go through on penalties against the netherlands ochoa in goal as well was it ochoa in goal yeah. It's unbelievable that World Cup. It was unbelievable. So you still end up getting a Germany Argentina final, but maybe both sides have had a bit more taken out of them. Because if Argentina get Mexico in the semi finals, that's going to be way more charged than the Netherlands. Oh my God, yes. And the food. Oh my God, the food. <laughs> Always the food, man. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I've just got to be real. So do you think Germany still end up winning that World Cup, or do you think Argentina do? See, I'm not sure. I think Brazil enable an Argentina victory because I think a Brazil with Neymar is the Brazil on a tide of sentiment, mm. right? But also like, which can still hurt you. Neymar being at that level, I just think it changes everything. I think Argentina win that World Cup, you know. Don't forget there were 120,000 Argentines in Rio for that final. Like the support there, like all of it. And also there's the Di Maria injury. Yeah. That's another big factor. Di Maria doesn't get injured because Di Maria never, this is one thing that Messi doesn't get in his credit. Every great footballer has an outlet. like. Maradona had Burachaga in the 80, in 86 and he had Valdano, right? 
Messi, when he's really needed it, has not had an outlet, has not had Di Maria. When he's most needed Di Maria, he's been injured for the Copa, one of the Copa America finals and for the World Cup. Yeah, Messi has not had much help no. for Argentina for a long, long time. Neymar, weirdly enough, might have given ne- Messi the assist he needed to win the World Cup in 2014. I think it was that close. I think the margins were that small. So is that the ultimate conclusion we're drawing from this? If Neymar doesn't get injured, Argentina win the World Cup? I very possibly think so. I think so. I think it's that close. So do you think in that case, Brazilians would have taken Neymar getting injured if it meant that Germany won the World Cup as opposed to Argentina? Can I, I don't want to answer that question because I was in Rio at the time and I know how afraid people were of Argentina leaving with that tournament. All I can tell you is I have never heard such a degree of gratitude as when Germany won. It was such a strange event because Germany won the World Cup, but there was no, you know, no big street party. The Germans were really discreet about it. It was like they were kind of on a package holiday. You, you couldn't tell they'd won a World Cup. The German fans were not triumphalist at all. And Brazil really appreciated that they didn't rub it in their faces. Mm-hmm. But there's also the fact, there's also a slight twist. The Germany football kit was designed so that it had the same uh, sort of branding. As, Flamengo. As, as Flamengo, yeah. So, yeah. so it became the second most popular kit in, in Brazil. Oh, I know. Cruel, mar- cruel tale. I know, marketing. Yeah, yeah. Right, let's move on to great something que- else. Great question. That yeah, back, really good. That took me back to Rio as well. That was lovely. Yeah, well, I'm glad you did. Glad you got to go there. <laughs> you can still do a studio session in Rio. Yeah, whatever. Whatever. <laughs> it's not the same. It's not the same. This one from Citroen 1. <laughs> if Sergio Ramos doesn't score and Atleti win the Champions League in 2014, the following years would look very different. Not only would the three-peat not have happened, but the Real Madrid team probably would have transferred out certain people who became the core. They probably would have won one Champions League at some point, but not as many as they did. So that was the, the La Decima year, wasn't it? Yeah. I'm not sure they transferred players. Do you know why I say that? Where do you go after Madrid? Really? like? Well, you used to go to Blackburn and Bolton. Yeah, that's true. But that, but that, that squad is designed for tournament victory. Yeah. In the sense that they're so individually talented, they're just locked in. So actually... It's a playoff team. It, it's actually, no disrespect. I, I love the question. I just don't think that team disintegrates because it's Madrid. It's Madrid. Like, that's the final destination for players of that quality. I don't see where else they go at that point in their, in their careers. I mean, Ancelotti would have been fired in 2014 as opposed to 2015. And I think if he gets fired without winning the Champions League, I wonder whether he gets that Bayern job. So I actually wonder what it looks like for Ancelotti. Interesting. And does Zidane come in earlier? Zidane comes in anyway, I think. But Ancelotti's a so win. Do you, you think maybe Zidane comes in for the 2014-15 season? Why is not? that too early? Why not? Because he was working... I mean, who else is available 2014-15? Klopp? Klopp doesn't go to Madrid. It's not his energy. I mean, it's not. It's but- not, it's not, it's not, it's not. I'm just thinking out loud who's available. Imagine Klopp in the interview looking out the window just going like, nah, these are, these are not the droids I'm looking for. Can't wear a cap in this gaff. No, it's not. Here's a, here's a <laughs> question for you. Here's a question for you. Are Real Madrid the most stable, dysfunctional super club of the last decade? Dude, they're a nuclear reactor. Is that, yeah, they're meant to actually. They are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the perfect analogy. Everything's bouncing off the walls, but it's still stable. It's st- yeah, you just, can't, you just can't nudge it two or three degrees either way or whatever it is. I've seen Chernobyl. I can't remember what the numbers are, but you just can't do it. <laughs> Massively unstable, but addictive. Though. It works. It's, it's addictive. It's, oh, it's straight into your vein stuff. It's this. You know, to my it vein. really is. Yeah. <laughs> just like that Tom Hanks in uh, The Green Mile 
where he takes a wee for the first time after he gets cured. He's just like, <laughs> that is just like you're gonna like use one gift to 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 explain the drama of Real Madrid. I don't know if we've got many Madrid fans that listen to this, but. I just want to say, I think you must be the happiest football fans because you get it all. You get a taste, you get a taste mm-hmm. of the dejection, but you get the trophies and you've got the kind of tradition. It's kind of like, you're always going to get jokes as a Madrid fan. You're always going to get jokes. It's like when String, you know, going back to the wire, it's like when Stringer says De- to D'Angelo, he's just like, this is forever, B. <laughs> you're never more than you know a few months away from potentially all getting locked up and the whole operation coming down but it's forever exactly madrid stay madrid yeah. always <laughs> brilliant okay right final one i reckon from Tascofa on twitter what if poland had beaten germany as they arguably should have in the 1974 world cup semi-final that's painful that's painful because, you see, if that happens, then Holland win that. Because Holland don't go cocky after taking the lead, which they will take the lead because they're Holland. Holland don't get cocky. And they play the final as they were supposed to have done. Cruyff gets his World Cup. Cruyff still becomes Cruyff, though, on and off the field. Because I think Cruyff is an undeniable force in world football. And I think that he's a good enough player and he's mentally strong enough to come back from that defeat. And I, I think... I think there's, there's, a, there's an old saying in what's that, uh, The Dark Knight Rises when Bane says to Batman, victory has defeated you, like victory has mm. made you soft. I don't think victory in the World Cup final makes Cruyff mentally soft. I think it takes him onto another level, actually. There's part of me that thinks he might retire from international football after that World Cup as opposed to in 77, though. Interesting. Which, I mean, ultimately, I don't think really has that much of a knock-on effect in terms of um, how things play out for the Dutch. I do wonder what it means for Mikels, though. Because I think if Mikels wins the World Cup, I'm not sure he keeps coming back. Not for 88, no. So I wonder if 88 happens. But to be honest, though, that group of players was so good in 88. You know, they had that core that we were at Milan. I mean, they probably had like arguably three of the top 10 players in the world at that point. But the Soviet Union was so good. They were so good that I don't think a coach less accomplished than Mikels beats him in that final. They were unreal. They were really good, yeah. Yeah, I think they win in 88. I just think that do you think the Soviet Union win in 88? Yeah, I think so. They were just that That's good. interesting though that then, because then what happens then for the Soviet Union? Because that's just as the Union is starting to break up. Right. And, and starting to fall. I think it affects the scouting of Russia. When a team wins a big tournament, that country becomes focused, lazy being focused with scouts. So I think it actually has a really big impact for Russian players. And like Scandinavian players became a kind of stock player like you knew you were getting good value in the Premier League if you bought Scandinavian at a certain point because the scouting was really good there. The league was quite transferable. I think that Russia becomes a league where you see far more recruiting from as a result of 88 around Europe. And that becomes a go-to country a lot more. I think Russia, with a population of hundreds of millions, I think that changes the face of European football because it just puts Russian players on the map and it gives Lobanovsky the crowning glory yeah, I think, that, I think that's the one. I think that's the key. So somehow we've managed to draw from Poland beating Germany in 1974 means that the Soviet Union wins in 88. But here's the thing. If we're going to take it there as well, the 1988 Euro final, two of the top five coaches, arguably of all time at international level, Mikos versus, versus Lobanovsky, that's, that's unbelievable how good those two were. 
I'd say top 10, definitely. Top 10, you could argue, yeah, you could argue. Top 10 for sure. Like national coaches, yeah, top 10, you could certainly arguable. That's yeah, a, international level, I think you've got two of the top 10 there. That's an unbelievable head-to-head. You know who's number one? Best all-time international manager. Arsene Wenger. There's only one. Arsene Wenger. Oh, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> Renard. I'm being silly. I'm being silly. Herve Renard. Wow, okay. We're taking it there. <laughs> Name me a manager who looks better in a tight-fitting shirt. That's true. He looks incredible. He looks I'll wait. Jamie Lannister. Still waiting. Jamie Lannister. No, I'm still waiting. <laughs> still waiting. So you can't see. All-time best international all-time. manager, Herve Renard. One other thing as well. Sorry, before I forget. If Lobanovsky wins in 88, then he could get a bigger job. He doesn't go to Dinamo Kiev, maybe. He gets a bigger job. Oh, he's going straight to Real Madrid. That's, and that is interesting because then... I mean, that's just not even a thing because that is just such a Real Madrid move, isn't it? Right, Sign then, the Soviet Union boss who has just won the Euros. Oh my God, that's blown my mind. Do you know why? Because the impact on Slavic football, it means that when they sign players from like Slavic countries, those players flourish. Like that chick, oh my God, that's really interesting. Lobanovsky going to Real Madrid in 1988 changes football, actually. So there we go. Lobanovsky at Real. <laughs> Somehow we've managed to get from Poland beat Germany in 74, Lobanovsky ends up at Real in 88. There we go. Easy. <laughs> Talk give us, about give peak transfer stadio nonsense. Peak stadio. <laughs> Listen. In the words of Craig Burley, <laughs> nerd nonsense <laughs> listen the golden rule of peak stadio is you have never seen peak stadio you know what the golden rule of stadio is <laughs> it's all in the edit all in the edit oh god let's get out of here let's get out of here uh, yeah stay well stay safe everyone any admin no admin no no instagram well we do we do have one yeah yeah we've got we've got an instagram it's at stadio football it is uh, our website is stadio.football and what's the twitter Mooter? what's the twitter it's at yeah. Stadio. Also, if you listen to Apple Podcasts, please leave a review and preferably a five-star rating because it really helps to grow the podcast. He got it. I got it. <laughs> and this week we're playing out on... This week, this episode. We keep saying this week, but we're on two a week, isn't it? So it's, it's my mistake. I just need to get a new line. Get a new line, right? <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> uh, we're playing out on Vaz. Cast Reflections. Glasgow, early 80s. Art school business. So yeah, no stadio sessions, no Instagram live this week. We're gonna have a Friday off. But yeah, we'll we'll come with some stuff next week. Anything else to add, Musok Wonga? Just to say it's been an absolute pleasure, Ryan, as always, and thank you so much for listening, everyone. Oh my god. Creep. <laughs> Let's creep out of here. See you later, everyone. Take care. <laughs>